again, I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to The Painful Truth, the weekly podcast and email newsletter and website, if you like, where we dig into the truth of Christ crucified and what that means for every aspect of our lives, for our ministries, for our daily discipleship, for our life in the world. And apologies up front today that my voice is a little bit kind of hoarse and raspy uh, as I'm recording this. Sorry about that. <clears throat> I'll do my best to put on my best radio voice, <clears throat> but it's just not going to work today. Well, a couple of posts or episodes ago, I talked about whether the church should be thought of more like a family or a community, or whether the church is more like a society or an enterprise that gets up and does things. And I ended up arguing that both of these aspects were very important and needed to be held together. And this got me thinking. Have you ever thought, have you ever pondered just how many different aspects of Christian teaching are just like this, where there are two truths that you have to hold together at the same time? Well, it got me thinking along those lines, and today's episode is the result. It's called Always Two There Are. Well, at the risk of opening a can of bantha fodder with all you Star Wars nerds out there, I think one of the very few interesting things to emerge from the otherwise appalling episode one of The Phantom Menace was the elucidation of the rule of two. The evil Sith Lords, it seems, were very much into two as a number. As Yoda puts it, always two there are. I won't try and do the voice. My voice is already hoarse enough. Always two there are, no more, no less, a master and an apprentice. And this is a tad... Ironic, I guess, coming from Yoda, because it's hardly just the Sith who are very much into two in the Star Wars universe. In fact, the whole ridiculous philosophical mashup that is Star Wars, of which Yoda, I guess, is the chief spokes Jedi, also depends on a basic dualism, a dualistic fight between two, that is, between the good side and the dark side of the Force. So there are two, always two in fact there are. But how are those two related to each other? Well, in Star Wars, as I've said, it's about a constant tension and war between these two, between the dark side and the good side, each striving for supremacy. And the Star Wars religion is like its ancient real-world ancestor Manichaeism in this. Uh, Manichaeism was the philosophy that Augustine fought against and others that divided the world into cosmic forces of good and evil that were in constant conflict. Now, in other philosophies, the two are related a bit differently. In Buddhism and Gnosticism and most forms of mysticism, for example, the kind of two-ness of the world is resolved by downplaying or demonising one side of it. So the physical world and its suffering is bad and nasty and not even quite real in Buddhism and Gnosticism. It's the spiritual or non-physical realm that is real and good and worth pursuing. That's how they resolve it. And I guess you could also say, if you want to get philosophical about it, in modern humanism, in modern rational thought, uh, following Hegel and others, we're confident that we can resolve the sort of two antitheses, the two opposite sides of any question, by thinking them together somehow into a new and greater synthesis, to which I would say, well, two world wars and a hundred million killed in genocides in the 20th century synthesize that. 
Anyway, the biblical universe has its own distinctive approach to the question of two, to the two-ness of reality. Because think, for example, of the following pairs, the following pairs of theological truths. You've got God's sovereignty on one side and human responsibility on the other, whether we're talking about conversion or even the course of the Christian life. You've got God's providential upholding of the creation at every moment on one side, and you've got the rational cause and effect nature of our world on the other. You've got the divine authorship of Scripture and the human authorship of Scripture. You've got the full divinity of Jesus Christ and his full humanity. You've got the fact that God is close and present with each one of us, that he's imminent, as the theologians say. But on the other hand, you've got his holy transcendence, the fact that he is completely other than us and far above us all. Here's another pair. You've got the vertical element of our church gatherings when we engage with God, but you've also got the horizontal element, our engagement with each other in church. That's another interesting pair. Or you've got the fact that we are fully and completely justified by Christ's blood, and yet at the same time, we remain sinful in our character and behaviour. This was Luther's famous dictum, of course, simul justus et peccator, at the same time justified and a sinner. Here's another interesting pair. Or you've got the fact that we are seated at God's right hand now, that reality that we are raised up with him and that we are citizens of heaven, and yet we also remain fully here in this present evil age. Our whole eschatology, our whole view of the end of the world, is paired. It's dual. There's a now and there's also a not yet. And you've got the fact that we stand before God as individuals and grow as individuals, but there's also a corporate element. We're unavoidably part of a corporate body as well, whether we're thinking of all of humanity or the body of Christ. And you can maybe think of others, but all of these pairs, and this is what's so striking about so many of the great truths of Christian revelation, that, they can, that it consists of two truths that you hold together at the same time, neither denying one side nor the other, nor seeking to even resolve the apparent tension between them. In fact, you could say that the history of Christian heresy and Christian error could be told as the failure to hold two truths fully together, either by downplaying one truth or the other, or by thinking that the way to have them stick together is to balance them in some way, in some sort of proportion, a bit of one and a bit of the other. If you think, for example, of the Christological heresies of the early church, the heresies that got the nature of Christ terribly wrong, it was almost always because they chose a side, Christ's divinity or his humanity, and banked on that, and failed to hold both sides fully together, which is what the Orthodox creeds, uh, the Chalcedonian creeds insisted that we do. Or you could take the Pelagian and semi-Pelagian heretics. Now, if you haven't heard of those, the Pelagians, or Pelagius, was someone who believed that salvation could be achieved by us, by our works, by our efforts. And the semi-Pelagians, as you probably can guess, believed that it was a bit of both, a bit of grace, but also a bit of works that helped as well. In fact, the medieval Catholicism that Luther rebelled against and that continues today in the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church is a kind of semi-Pelagian 
approach, one that mingles salvation by works and by grace. Anyway, the problem with both the Pelagians and the semi-Pelagians is that they couldn't bring themselves to say that salvation is through faith alone, by grace alone, because they felt if they emphasized that, that somehow sidelined or eliminated human action, human responsibility to respond to God and to repent. Or you could say that with Arminianism, that's the view that's opposed to Calvinism, that is uncomfortable with predestination and election. The problem with the Arminians is that they can't cope with saying that humans are fully responsible and culpable, while at the same time affirming that God is utterly sovereign in election, whereas the Bible, of course, teaches both of those truths side by side. And we can see the same with eschatology. Uh, many of our problems with eschatology come from leaning too hard on one side or other of the two truths. If we lean too hard on the not yet of our salvation, we can lapse into a kind of quietism, a sort of an otherworldly quietism where we have no real interest in doing anything now because everything is in the future. But on the other hand, if we lean too hard on the present blessings of salvation, on the now, we can find ourselves bringing the blessings of the next age into this age, and we find ourselves on the road to the prosperity gospel, or its slightly less aspirational twin, the social gospel. And we could go on. In each case, the problem is not holding the two sides, the two truths, together at the same time. In each case, the answer is not to deny one side or the other, nor to sit on the fence between them, nor to try to balance them out in a certain proportion, as if God is kind of 73% sovereign in our salvation and, and we contribute the other 27%. In each case, it's a matter of giving full weight at the same time to both propositions, both of them being demonstrably true, even though from some perspectives and sometimes from our limited perspectives, they appear to be paradoxical or even contradictory. I can't help wondering why Christianity is like this. Why, of, of all the religions and philosophies of the world, does Christianity uniquely and consistently strike this note? Why does it hold together so many apparent paradoxes? And precisely by doing this, succeed in, in explaining and accounting for the reality of our world in such a compelling and, and beautiful way. Why is Christianity like this? Why does it so often hold two truths together? Well, I have a hunch, I don't know if it's true, but I have a hunch that somewhere down deep, it goes back to the doctrine of creation, and especially creation ex nihilo, that is creation from nothing. When God made the universe, he made something that was completely distinct from himself. The creation wasn't an emanation of God's being. It wasn't part of God. He didn't make take part of himself and form it into the creation. And he didn't make himself part of the creation. God isn't infused into all the creation like he is in pantheism. No, the world was made from nothing. It was made as a reality that was both completely distinct from God and yet also at the same time completely contingent upon God for its existence and its life. The world only exists because God wanted it to and wants it to. And yet it's not part of him. 
the world has a life, creation has a life that is absolutely its own. And I wonder if this first and really basic duality creates a kind of pattern that keeps being expressed in God's relationship with his world and his people and in his revelation. We exist in this creation, and we only know God, of course, because he reveals himself to us in the creation. And in every aspect of that revelation, and at every point of it, in the past or the present or even in the future, God seems to act as he did at the very beginning when he made everything from nothing. He remains transcendently separate, holy, completely sovereign over his creation, even as, at the same time, he is closely, lovingly, and mightily active within his creation. This is how God acts and speaks and relates to us again and again and again. And it all climaxes in the revelation of his Son, for whom and to whom the whole creation was made. Jesus, the Son, the incarnate, crucified, resurrected Son, who in his own person embodies not only the transcendent, holy God who made everything, but also the humanity that he made and that he's chosen to draw into fellowship with himself. Well, these are very deep waters, aren't they? And although, I guess, as in all things, God hovers over the waters and brings life to them and order to them, I think there's only really one thing left to say, and the Apostle Paul has already said it. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, thanks again for the ongoing correspondence that a number of you have been sending about that episode to do with church as family and church as enterprise. It does seem to have struck a chord with a number of people as a, an interesting way to think about some of our dilemmas especially in relation to the struggles of many churches to be the kind of family that is also outward-looking and evangelistic in character. In fact, I wrote this paragraph back to one correspondent, and I think it kind of captures the heart of the issue for many of you. I said, A healthy church has the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus himself, at the center, as the binding, nourishing center of the family life, of the congregation and as the motivation and basis for action together, for coordinated action that brings us together to bring the gospel to others. And this is why churches that are not outward-looking and evangelistic also often feel a bit lacking in the family dimension as well. If Jesus and his gospel is really at the centre, it will generate not only a rich and true sense of brotherhood and sisterhood, but an impetus to lay down our lives for the lost, just like our master did. I think that sounds about right. Do you think so? A special thanks, too, to David Honey for his help with today's post when I was groping about trying to figure out how the doctrine of creation related to all this stuff, to the proliferation of paradoxes within Christianity. A little natter with David on the phone did the trick. So 
Thanks, DH, for your help. And as always, if you'd like to get in touch to talk further about today's episode or any of the episodes uh, that you can find on the Painful Truth website, you can go back and listen to all of the episodes that I've done so far, or about 35 of them, I suppose, uh, at The Painful Truth. Uh, They also should be, of course, on the podcast feed that you're uh, receiving, but you can also find them on the website and in text form to browse through quickly there as well. And of course, feel free to flick this particular podcast to your friends and to people you'd like to stimulate with it. I'm very glad for you to do that. And while you do that, encourage them to sign up so they can get updates for themselves. Well, that's about all for this week's rather deep and philosophical episode of The Painful Truth. I hope that's stimulated to think more deeply about the nature of Christian truth and how often it consists of these paradoxical elements we have to hold together at the same time. I hope that encourages you and leads you to humbly and gratefully give honour and glory to God our Father. Thanks again so much for listening and being with me today. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.